Welcome to an inspirational teaching by our guest speaker of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. Letter to the Hebrews, because it's actually a letter that is written to a specific people's group that is mentioned in the title, and that is the Hebrew Christians. It's not, it's, it's believers that come from a particular background, and the person who was writing the letter, and we don't even know exactly who that was, he was writing to these people uh, because he saw their particular environment and he saw their particular struggle. Just like Ani was saying, you know, we know something about the situation in the north of this country. This writer was saying, I see something about this particular people's group. And they were from... Uh, originally uh, a Jewish background, they had found Jesus. When you read the letter, you will again and again find passages where you realize they have really delighted in the love of God, in the joys, walking with God. They have seen the powers of God. They have had this life, but something has happened. And since they had never had the privilege of being able to go to an encounter weekend, because what is happening in those weekends is a lot of, you know, what stuff that we come across as we, as we follow Christ even. And so they actually had started looking at what else is there. They were disheartened. They were discouraged. And they were in the danger of looking back to where they had come from. And they were in the danger of going back to their old religion because they could not make proper sense of the religion they were following. It, was, you know, it wasn't even the religion, but it had become a religion to some of them. Following Christ, you're not religious. You are following a person. And they were thinking, why not? It's safer where I have come from. And they were struggling with some of these questions that were there. And so what the writer is doing in, this, in, the, in the whole letter is that he's specifically addressing their situation. And that is what it makes difficult for us to read at times when we are not Jews. Because a lot of what the writer takes for granted, and he's quoting from the Old Testament in a big way, for us may seem difficult. But when we look at the letter, what he does, he's addressing key questions that these people had. Key questions about life, key questions about their life. Uh, he, add, he adds a few warnings about their walk, but what I want to look at is, is actually one of the questions that was there. One of the questions that was there, and they were struggling with, and, you know, they were in danger of losing sight who actually Jesus was. This morning we were reminded that you know, he is so much more than the governor. We have access to the highest of five, but they had lost sight of that. And so one of the questions that they were struggling with is, who is this Jesus, and why were things going with him the way they were going? You could also answer the, ask the question like this, why did Jesus have to become man? If he was the governor, if he's sovereign, why did he have to become man? Why could he not have done it in another way? And you know, sometimes when we are facing these difficult questions, we have a habit of avoiding them, isn't it? If you've been following Christ, you've confessed your, your faith and uh, to people outside, uh, I'm sure sooner or later you have come, you have been asked the question, now if this is your God of love, why does he allow wars? Why does he allow suffering? And sooner or later, even in your Christian walk, you will encounter suffering for yourself. And you ask the question, why is it? Why is all of that? I was told the other day to go and watch a movie, which I had forgotten the title, and then in one of my travels, I happened to be in a flight, and I saw this movie, and I looked at it, and it was called The Hacksaw Ridge. And it's a movie about a war. And it's 
sort of, I, I watched that movie, and I'm not giving a recommendation, the pastor can do that. But it's a, it's a movie that also shows the reality of war. You have these American troopers, and they, are try, they have to get up this ridge and fight the enemy, and it is a bloodshed. And obviously, being German with my own history, these things come back, and you ask the question, why does God allow it? Why does He not end them? Why does God not end war? Why does He not just come from heaven and end it like that? He has the power to do. I think if God did like that, He would have had to end quite a few marriages also. Is it? He doesn't do that. Why does he not do that? Now, I know these answers are not maybe all of that satisfying, but the question, why does God, why did he have to become man? And I think, and that is what I want to do this morning, we do find the core of the answer in this chapter 2 of the letter to the Hebrews, to these Christians there. It's not the full answer, but it's an indication. But it's something that I like about this letter. The letter does not address the surface. It goes, in, it goes below just like the encounter weekend, you know, it digs below, it digs below, and sometimes when we dig below, it does take time for the surface to get soft and actually the truth appear. So what we want to do this morning is we want to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 to 18. And uh, as I said, even as we read it, we may think this is complicated. Therefore, he's writing there and he actually has spoken about angels before in the first chapter. An angel already appeared this morning here. If you remember, Victor was talking about an angel, and I love it. For me, that is just a little indication that Andrea is saying, look, when I told you to take Hebrew or us, it was not coincidence. Angels bring messages. And in Hebrews chapter 1, he has spoken about that, and in Hebrews chapter 2, he goes on. And what he does is he compares angels with the person of Jesus. So that is the, the setting as we go into this. But then in chapter 2, he says the following, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care of him? You made him for a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, he doesn't mention the name of Jesus here, but very clearly we know when he speaks of the son of man, even when he quotes from the Old Testament, where the reference would speak of God because Jesus had not appeared, what he really is saying is, see, this Son of Man is the one who is the Son of God. And God has given full control over to him. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. There he goes. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might test, taste death for everyone. And are you still following the argument? If you're not, that's fine. Most people struggle with the density of how it is brought about. And it goes on like that. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And now it gets worse. And I feel a little sorry for doing that because it's early morning. 
But the writer there does it, and it's there in the Bible, and it's part of the truth. Now, he quotes again from the Old Testament, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given. He is quoting from the Old Testament because he knew that the people that he was speaking to, they are familiar with these verses, and it's Scripture. If we are not so familiar with these verses, it's more difficult to follow. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. And another word that you probably were not taught at school. And I don't know if your parents spoke about it. But for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's Break it down in three steps. That is what I want to do, the whole of that. See, sometimes when we have a passage like that, it is good to take a step back and ask the question, what do I see from afar? What is like a red thread? What is a recurring thing? And then take a look at that and from there fill in the bits and pieces that, like the quotes or the argument that actually is coming like that. And this is what I've done and this is what, like what I want to suggest to us. What is he saying here, really? The first part is just the verses 5 to 9. And here they are, here they are not. What he says in the beginning, here we go, is that actually, if we look at it, we see Jesus in two different positions. Verse 5, he starts off, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. You know, he, in putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside his control. What he is saying here is, look, this is the reality that we live in. The reality is, Jesus is above the earth. Jesus is above all. And Jesus actually is crowned with glory and honor. And we sang to him this morning in this position. That is what we were doing this morning. We sang it. This is Jesus above everything. He puts it very clearly. He has left nothing outside his control. An angel brought a word this morning to some of us in particular. And the word was about a very difficult, threatening, life-threatening situation. What the scripture here says is, look, whatever your perspective, nothing is outside the control of Jesus. Nothing. No situation. No war. No despair. No sickness. No suffering. And actually, Jesus is above the angels. This is why I've put it like this. Why is he speaking about angels? Well, he's putting things into place there. And what has happened to the Jewish people and to a degree is still happening if you look into their history, is, you know, they delighted in stories about angels. Why? They were seemingly above them because they are outside time and realm and outside, you know. And I think you're one of the, 
Today we don't talk about angels much more, but how many avatars do you see in your movies? How many beings somewhere outside are being portrayed in the film industry? Where does it come from? And so the Jews delighted, and we have, we have the reality of the, the supernatural. And it's, it's not just the demons, it's angels. If you look into the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts and only look out how many angels appear there, you will be hopefully encouraged. And so Jesus sometimes may disappear because of the, all of the angelic things that are, that are happening. What the writer does is he puts things in place. In chapter 1 he has said, angels actually are ministering spirits. They are there to minister to your needs. So the angel that actually was seen this morning was sent by God to minister something. He's bringing something from somewhere to you. It's a way that God chooses to get through to us. And so he puts them into the place. So what we see is the reality. Jesus has the control of everything. That is why we sing. That is why we worship. And that is what we know. But there's one problem. It doesn't always look like that. And the message that has come to some of us this morning, the severe situation, it doesn't look like Jesus is in control now. You watch a movie like this Hacksaw Ridge where there is immense bloodshed and they're climbing up. You know, it does not look like Jesus is in control. Suffering happening. It doesn't look, you pray, it doesn't look like God is in control. And you are beginning to ask these questions. Where is he? The question, where is God in your war? is a logical consequence of that. Our perspective is different. And this is what the writer addresses in the next few lines. He's really answering the question, why don't we see everything like that all the time? And so he is looking at our perspective starting from verse 8. At the second half, he says, nothing, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, but at present, we do not see yet everything in subjection to him. But we see Jesus on the opposite. We see him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What he really is saying, our perspective is not always that. Our perspective is that we see Jesus even lower when he came. When we look at the person of Jesus Christ, he seems lower than the angels. And he's actually confirming that. He says Jesus came and he was lower than the angels. But look what he says very carefully. He says, for a little while, for some time. We are limited to time. And he says, look, for some times we saw that this is what was happening. Some people look at Jesus and they see him in a long time in that perspective. What did he do? Died and went. No, no, Jesus put away. No. He says, for we do not see everything at the present time in subjection to him. There seems to be a different reality, and we need to realize we live in a reality where not everything is subject to Christ. If it was, I need not speak. An encounter wouldn't happen. We had other encounters all of the time. So the question of perspective comes in, and how I handle this perspective. And we need to answer the question, why actually do we see him lower for some time? Why was Jesus made lower than the angels for some time? So for the Jewish mindset, that put them into place that they say, look, Jesus, yes, lower, but actually he is above everything. Why is it that it happened at that time like that? And then the writer gives an answer to this question. And he's really beginning to answer the question, why did Jesus have to become man? 
Why was it necessary for him to die on the cross? See, sometimes people come up and say, your Jesus, that is a cruel thing. How can you tell me that God loves his son when he nails him to the cross? What love is this? Why did he have to become man? This is the answer that the writer is giving here. Let us read it. And I have put it, you know, in the outline. I have left the quotes aside so that actually we can see a little clearer of what he is saying, the red thread that he is saying. Actually, I think he gives two reasons for it. And reason number one we find in verse 10. We see him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Strong word. What does he say? Why was it? Reason number one. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What is the argument that the writer is saying here? The argument is, for it was fitting. Full stop. God thought about it. God came up with an answer. This fits. What fits? The author of salvation to be made perfect through suffering. Full stop. God made it up. God executed. God thought it's good. This is the way. Full stop. No debate. No argument. Nothing. That's it. You and I have had a wonderful time in November last year. Remember? What happened in this country in November last year? November 8. Ah, see, you've already forgotten. You've gotten used to your new banknotes. I tell you what happened. For it was fitting to one government person, the name everybody knows, to say by midnight, this and this banknote ceases to have any value. It was like that. And we were exposed to the news a few hours before. It was fitting right. It was seemingly the right thing for him to do to address a particular problem. I'm not going into a discussion whether this was right or not. You have your answer to that. The discussion that I am interested about is when God says it is fitting and God is perfect and God knows everything, I know it is essentially good if he decides something. And if God says it is fitting that the author of salvation should be made perfect through suffering, then this is a thing that is right to do. Did we suffer from November 9 onwards? Kunjam, I think you all look like you've recovered pretty well. Do we suffer from something that God is saying? Possibly. Definitely what the writer is saying is, look, to really come to a place of redemption, we have to deal with the problem of suffering and its roots. And he went to the extent, to the degree that he says, the author of salvation has to go through the same process. It was fitting to God. Do I like it? No. What I do like is, I know God is good. And so if God says, this is good, then it is good. So in the suffering that I'm facing as a believer, there will always be an element of me knowing I don't like it, I hate it, it's bad, but I know the author of it all, actually, who is in control, he knows about this way of allowing things. Now, the Apostle Peter in his letters writes about it much more amply. And again, that is a message that we don't like to hear, and so we try to, to overlook. But this is what the writer says at this moment. But he says the second thing about it, you know. He doesn't only say it was fitting for God to do it like that. He says the second argument comes, the question comes up, why was it fitting? 
Give me some indication. And he's not only giving an indication, but he's, why was it fitting for the author, for the perfect person? The second thing that he's saying there is in verse 11 and 12 and 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I leave out the quotes that are underlining it from a Hebrew perspective. What he is saying here is, in essence, it was fitting to God and it was not just a random decision. It was God looking at the problem and addressing the problem. And he says he must go through the suffering because he says, look, he who sanctified our Redeemer and the one who is being sanctified, that is me. We are of one. Positive note is that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. But the essence of what Hebrews is saying here is that I am of the same like God. That is a different perspective. The two are of one. Now, in church history, there has been a bit of a debate, especially in the Greek thinking, which this is not. What does that mean of one? What I'm convinced of that it means is what it says actually in the book of Genesis. That when God created mankind, he created them man, male and female. Remember? One thing. But he says they are after which image? Now, here's my question. Do we only carry the image or do we carry more of God in us? Are we just an outside model of God's essence, of God's nature, of God's being? If that was the case, you would have immediately to ask the question, where does our creativity come from? Where do our emotions come from? Everything that makes, up, makes us up, and it's difficult to even grasp it psychologically at times. Where does it come from? What the writer here is reminding us that actually we are not only God's creation distance from Him, but we are of Him, of the same nature. This is why God delighted when He had made Adam and Eve. He says, look, I have also made the earth. God delights in creation and He says, now you go and do something about it. He did not say, you go and do something about it and watch out that you do it this, 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 this way. No, he said, now you go and you govern and you rule. The governor was extending, not his domain, but actually extending a way in which he wanted to govern. And he says, this is it, you do it. Why? We are the same essence. There is God in you, in me. No wonder when the devil came and robbed some of that dignity in us, God would say, no more, devil. We live in a time when many people would not think that that is true. They speak of the dignity of human life, but they limit it to our perspective of human life. When God looks at us, He looks at us as part of Himself, not just the family, my flesh, my bone, my heart, my life, my being, my essence. That is what you and I are in His eyes. And that is why He wants us to live in the fullness of all of that that He is and has. But, but there was this event when in this liberty to actually govern Adam and Eve, and in consequence, all of us overstepped that mark. What did Adam say? Or what did the devil say at the time? No, you can eat from the fruit in the garden so that you know which is good and which is bad. Which tells me that Adam and Eve, before they ate from the fruit, they did not have a certain awareness of good and bad. Now think of that. Created 
and you do not know what is good and bad. This is initially what God had in mind. But then this happened, and in order to prevent them from eating the other fruit, which would make, bring them into a position where they eat the fruit of eternal life, he says, no, enough of that. It's enough struggle that we know how to discern good and bad. And that is why today we struggle with the question of good and bad in the world. It was fitting to God to go that way. Why? Because he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have, ESV puts it, one source. Other versions say, are of one. Are of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That is why Jesus freely says, you are my brothers. And this is why God actually calls us his children of one, my, my child. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so let's see the third part of this little slide. The first thing he says, Jesus reigns higher than the angels. Second was our perspective. Our perspective, Jesus for some time lower than the angels, and then again being crowned with all glory. That was our perspective, lower. Why? It was fitting to God. Why? Because we are of one. And the third step really is that he highlights the oneness of Jesus and myself for the time being. And the ultimate reason that he really says is because you have this discernment of good and bad, which is why bad is in the world. Therefore, Jesus had to become just like you and me. Jesus had to become man. Jesus had to be in everything, if you read verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. The focus of God is not on the angelic beings. The focus of God is on his children. And therefore... Jesus had to come the same way. Therefore, Jesus did not just identify in words. He did not just go through and say, oh yeah, I know about suffering. I know this is bad. No, he identified in everything with my emotions, with my feelings, with what I am, with what I'm going through. He himself went to the point even of death. This is why he had to become man. Verse 15, 16, 17, look at that. And they compare the two so that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery of all of their lives. See, the fear of death had also entered at that time. And Jesus, God, looks at us and he sees us in this position being bound by the fear of death. And brothers and sisters, is that not what the world is in? And this is not just physical death, but death in so many ways. Uh, the fears that we have, you know, the death that I might, you know, someone said, you know, my awareness of myself. There's so many fears that govern our lives. And God says, in order to get them out of that, they need to see the power of God alongside them, next to them, with them, for a little while. This is why Jesus, the Almighty God, had to come down and live like you and me to save us out of that. What I've done is I've taken this little step backward to try to bring the, the verses in line with that, what he says. We are now in the danger of saying, ah, but that doesn't answer all of the questions. Fine, if it doesn't. But I encourage you to really take some more time thinking about what he says and what answers he's giving. 
ultimately. He goes on in the letter to these Jewish believers uh, in, a, in a different way. And he keeps comparing Jesus to uh, a lot of the things that were dear to them. But what he says to us, and this is why the letter is in the Bible, to really let us know that it was not just a random thought for God to send his son to my level. My perspective is different. Let me come back to Hacksaw Ridge movie. If you watch the movie, it's a little depressing. It has a great message about the, a Christian who holds faith in, uh, strong in faith, and it's, it's quite encouraging if you, if you watch it. But as such, the movie is depressing because it starts with manslaughter and it finishes. Sorry to say that if you want to go and watch it. It finishes on this note. They were not able to conquer that, you know. But that movie is just the sequence of a whole war. And the war eventually was won by the Americans. And that is where perspective is so important. And this is what the writer is addressing us. Look, when you look at the perspective and even at the humanity of Christ, when you look at your suffering, never forget that the war is won. Not will be won. The war is won. Jesus is exalted. Everything is under his control. The outworking of it, again, it seems to be fitting to God that that is taking some time, but we are in the process of that. The same happened in World War II. In Europe, the world officially finished on the 8th of May 1945 in Europe when Germany surrendered. All the historians would say, actually, World War II finished on the 6th of June in 1944. That was the day that the Allied forces landed in the Normandy. And things took that turn that had to be worked out. Brothers and sisters, the war is won. It's over. Jesus has won. A few battles need to be fought. And Jesus is not there saying, you fight the battle. He has come down and identified with me in the battle. There's only one little question that I will have one day to him. Jesus, why did you not get married? That you can speculate about that. I will, I will get an answer to that. Brothers, we serve the living God, and we have access. I once read this story, which I want to close with, which is, you know, when people, uh, sometimes you have these jokes and the stories, and here someone portrays, you know, the big crowd of people, uh, they die, and they, they make it to heaven, and then they realize, okay, God is there, and he's going to judge us. And you have the people gathered, and they say, look, he, here's the judge, here's the judge, here's the judge. And look, this is God, this is God. And what right does he have to judge us? And so as they stand and they start arguing and they start grumbling their mankind before God, how can he judge us? Oh, he's so far attached. He's so far off. Sometimes people say that to us, where is God? He's, he's there in heaven. I'm here. And so the people start saying, how can he judge us? Actually, a judge that could could deserve the right to judge us. He should not be there. He should actually be poor like me. If he was suffering like me, if he was born into an illegitimate family like me. Another says, yeah, even if he was outcast from his family. Another person says, no, actually also not only that, but he should be betrayed by his best friends because this is what I have gone through. And another person comes and says, not only by his best friends betrayed, but he should be accused by his so-called friends. Another says, no, not only like that, he should be falsely accused. He should be innocent and yet be accused. And another one says, yeah, and he should be sentenced because of that, because this is what I have gone through. 
but he should not be put to an easy death. He should, yeah, he should be actually punished to death because of what he has done. But not easy. He should be publicly scorned and mocked at. Then, if he was like that, then the church has the right to judge me. He should be brutally killed, and he should be prematurely robbed of his life. This is what happened to my brother. And as the people were talking all of that, their sight turned from God the judge to Jesus sitting next to him. And suddenly they turned silent because they realized it already has happened. It was fitting to God to go this way. Many people have tried to become like God, but only one God, the God, has become like man. That is the message of Hebrews chapter 2 and has identified and even had to like Hebrews says he had to learn as a high priest, you know, as the one who, who brought the sacrifice by shedding his blood, not only achieved forgiveness, but actually earned, if you have to speak in those terminology, earned the right to do that. For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.